I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back and Happy New Year. I have for quite a while wanted to do a show about Edith Wharton, who is perhaps the greatest literary figure of her time. She's certainly up there with the likes of Mark Twain and Henry James as writers who epitomized the very best of the Gilded Age. In fact, Wharton could have given the era its name. I think the book The Age of Innocence was a far more remarkable book than Twain and Warner's The Gilded Age, and I think it better captures the essence of the period. Edith Wharton was born in 1862 to wealthy New York parents, and she grew up in the same neighborhood that Theodore Roosevelt had, the same neighborhood that Tammany Hall boss Tweed had lived in, and the same neighborhood as the Fifth Avenue Hotel that attracted the era's top business leaders like Jay Gould and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Wharton lived a rarefied life of luxury. Her family sent her on overseas trips to learn European languages, she studied at exclusive libraries, and by her teens had already written her first novel and published her first poems in magazines. After marrying, Wharton moved to Boston and took up writing nearly full-time. She published House of Mirth in 1905, which remains one of her most acclaimed books. And after the first decade of the new century had closed, Wharton changed everything. She moved to Paris. She divorced her husband, which was an unusual decision for a woman of her social status at that time. She also determined to live in Paris despite the outset of the Great War. During the war, she worked in the relief effort helping refugees and homeless victims in Paris. There, on the left bank, Wharton wrote some of her most iconic novels, including The Age of Innocence. After the war ended and Wharton's fame had reached its apex, the French regional administrator in Morocco requested that she visit the colony in North Africa to write a travelogue, and she obliged, publishing In Morocco, one of her more obscure books and the subject of my discussion today with Professor Stacy Holden. Stacy is a historian of food and culture in Morocco, and if that sounds like an excellent life decision, it is. Stacy has written extensively about the food of modern Morocco and has a book of the same title. She has also written about the Middle East and Arab history from the 19th century to the present day. And if you haven't come across Stacy in editorials in the Washington Post or in History Today, you can find her at the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue University in Indiana. Welcome to the show, Stacy. Thanks, Mike. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this to my attention because I didn't know that your research about Wharton and Morocco were, were going on until we connected. And yet I've always wanted to have someone come on the show and talk about Wharton because she's as big of a personality as just about anyone else. So I was wondering if you could do us the favor of introducing Wharton. Tell us who she is, what she's about, because everyone will know the name, but listeners might not know her importance beyond literature. And that's really your realm of research. Yeah, she is a she's a familiar name, and sometimes people do have difficulty placing her because uh, she she was on sort of high school reading um, lists for a long time. She's a very famous author. She was an elite Knickerbocker kind of you know woman um, daughter of a, one of these wealthy New York families. She seemed that she was going to have a sort of normal Knickerbocker life, meaning living off of the profits of her New York real estate. But in the 1890s, she began to publish. And I think that most people know her for her novels. So she wrote The House of Mirth, which is probably one of her, her first and still favorite novels. 
Uh, that came out in, I believe, 1902. And then she wrote the, the Age of Innocence, which came out in 1920. And Martin Scorsese then went and, and did a, a, a film, which kind of led to a, a Wharton revival, I think, in the 1990s. Um, I'm not interested as much in those famous works of literature. I'm looking at In Morocco, which is a travelogue that she put out in 1920 and basically is considered one of the, um, it's not just a lesser known work of Edith Wharton, but it's actually a work that's that's kind of denigrated and dismissed. And this is because it is very much a sort of vehicle for imperial propaganda. There's a lot of ethnic essential, essentializing in it. Uh, it's a book that makes Wharton fans, and I think Wharton scholars, a bit uncomfortable. So she's an early 20th century figure, a famous author, and she wrote this kind of odd travelogue in 1920. And that's sort of the entry point for me uh, to look at her, because I'm a historian of Morocco, and I'm very curious to know why. Why did she write this book? I mean, yeah, exactly. You just you just uh, segued perfectly to what I was going to ask you about, which is your own research. You're a history, a historian of Morocco. You write about food in Morocco, too. Right. And you've written about literary perceptions of the Middle East. It's all rather interdisciplinary, your work. Um, yeah. How in the world did you find yourself studying these topics? Well, I'm interested in everyday life and I'm also interested in representations of everyday life. So my um, first book was on, as you say, the politics of food in modern Morocco. And it was really a deep dive into urban life in Morocco in the 19th and early 20th century. That is before and after uh, the French colonial administ administration took over. However, I've always been, as I would say to my TAs, sort of a closet Americanist. So I've always kind of had an eye on how Americans represent the Arab world. And as a historian, I lived in Morocco, did my research for three years, and travelogues were a lot of the primary sources that you find available for the late 19th and early 20th century. So I had come across Edith Wharton pretty early, I would say around maybe a little more than 20 years ago, I read it as I was in Morocco, as I was deep into this research um, on everyday life and, and foodways in Moroccan cities. And the information that I found in this travelogue was so different from what I had expected. An American who was not involved necessarily in empire at that time in Morocco would say it, it, the basically the book is a propaganda vehicle for French empire. Uh, there was no sense of what colonized Moroccans were thinking, doing, feeling. So I, I did put down the book. I, I put down the book, uh, it, it served no purpose, but I found myself returning to it a few years later. I had uh, my university, Purdue University, offers what's called a second dis discipline fellowship. And it allows you one year to focus on a discipline that is not your own. So for me, as a historian, I focused on literature and I wanted to come back to this idea of how literature can be a primary source for historians in what ways. Um, and that's where the sort of, I had written um, at a time, uh, Purdue University had the second largest ROTC program in the United States. I had a lot of students who were in the military. Uh, I did write about romance novels in post 9-11 and a post 9-11 world that were set in the desert. I also wrote on PTSD with a, a um, psych psychologist. Um, so I sort of jumping off of what was going on at that time was taking more of an interest in how Americans had ideas about the Arab world. And that led me to, to come back to Edith Wharton because she was probably the most famous author to go 
uh, to Morocco, probably the first, uh, or in terms of American authors, probably the the first American author to really write about uh, Morocco, particularly colonial Morocco. And she wrote about it so favorably. And I found that very odd um, because in fact, the United States refused to recognize the protectorate of, of Morocco for a long time. So again, I come back to why is she representing Morocco um, and the French protectorate in such glowing terms when I know that Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson have all had all decided that they would not recognize the protectorate. So it really led me again to some questions uh, that I could address both through historical archival documents, but also through the close reading of the literary text, this, this representation that's being kind of disseminated to ordinary readers in the United States to understand what Wharton was doing and why she was writing the way she was. I've got a serious question about Wharton and Paris and maybe her perspective on this. However, I want listeners to just think about this for a moment. Three years of research in Morocco on food. I mean, this is a dream job. <laughs> I mean, you, you honestly, it's, this is perfect yeah. life. <laughs> no, well, I have, I have actually, I have, I don't, I don't want to say I haven't, but you have to remember that 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 actually meant i mean food means you have to go to the slaughterhouse and interview butchers uh and who would really like to show you how they can slaughter a camel and for an american who grew up thinking that meat grew on packages on trees <laughs> that's really that was actually not as glamorous as you might think it was very i mean you of course, I'm very respectful of what these men do. Um, but at the same time, I was also raised to think all animals are cute um, and food is something different. So, yeah. All right. Well, I can definitely get on a tangent there for sure, because that, it just sounds like a great life choice. Um, but I'll, I'll ask about Wharton. That's what we're here for. So, I mean, I read somewhere that Wharton crossed the Atlantic something like a hundred times, which for the Gilded Age and Progressive era seems beyond excessive. And, you know, her glowing sense of French colonialism in Morocco, does it have to do with the fact that she lived in Paris for so long? It does, and it, and it doesn't. The, so let me explain the it doesn't first. Wharton traveled a lot. She traveled a lot even for people of her wealth and status. Um, her family left New York City. Some of her earliest memories were in Europe. Um, her family left after the Civil War. They wanted to avoid um, inflation and other inconveniences that the Civil War brought. And so they spent a number of years in Europe. So she grew up, her earliest memories are sort of of this cosmopolitan world, Italian, French, Spanish, um, but she continued to travel and she would go in 1888 with her new husband on a Mediterranean cruise. And you can see there some of her responses to sort of the Islamic world or the idea that was being created mostly in the Europe of an Islamic world, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, of French Algeria. She went to Tunisia just seven years after the French had established uh, a protectorate there. So you can see that travel and her exposure to particularly people in France are affecting her worldview. But I would also say that she's very much, it's not just that she's repeating sort of the French party line in terms of colonialism. She's very thoughtful. She um, has, when the United States it goes to war in 1898 and becomes in its own right expansionist, you know, overseas expansion, this is something that she really supports. 
Um, so for her and, and not, and, and many of her friends did not. So Charles Eliot Norton was one of the founders of the sort of anti-imperial um, political um, activists. Um, and he's very much against expansionism. Mark Twain, one of her, the authors that she speaks glowingly of in her autobiography is very much against expansionism. But for her, she believes that the United States and American interests are best served, not just from expansionism, but also from allying itself with France and French empire. So it's not that she's regurgitating something that is very kind of pat and established among her elite set. She's giving this some real thought and in some sense is a vanguard of what is going to become going to become sort of standardized in American foreign policy later on, which is Western intervention betters the lives of Arab peoples. Um, this is something from Mark Twain, who also traveled to uh, the same, many of the same places she did, including Morocco. Um, you can have this sort of racialized hierarchical sense that Americans are better and Moroccans are not better, but that does not necessarily lead to an interventionist impulse. But for Wharton, she's recalibrating some of these same sort of romanticized Arabianites images to give a very different foreign policy conclusion. Yeah, and William Dean Howells is another one. He would have taken that same racial hierarchy view, but with a non-militarist uh, impulse. Um, when I was looking at uh, Wharton, I was thinking, what are her favorite ports of call and why Morocco? Like, what brings her to Morocco? Morocco, she went to Morocco in 1917. So Edith Wharton basically established herself permanently as a resident of France in 1907. Um, between 1907 and 1910, you can see she's there more and more and she eventually gets a, an apartment there that and, and sets herself up permanently. She divorces her husband. Um, during the war, when the war breaks out, um, she had she made a decision to stay. I, I don't even think it was a decision. I think she just was staying. There was never any, like, should I stay? Should I go back? Should I return to the United States? And she becomes very active in, in efforts to um, help refugees from uh, in the war. Uh, and she's gonna win all sorts of government medals and global accolades for the, the uh, war charities that she establishes. And she also does some war reportage. And in that war reportage, she's going to make the argument time and time and time again that the United States should end its neutrality and should ally with France. This was not for many reasons, not possible. But one of those reasons that I think is understudied is the United States did not acknowledge, did not recognize France's establishment of a protectorate in Morocco in 1912. According to the government, the United States government, the Treaty um, of Algeciras had prevented any European country from colonizing Morocco, which was an independent kingdom. It was an independent kingdom and it was also the first country to recognize American independence. And so I wanna just kind of add that here. That's important. You can say, well, in 1777, it's not important. We don't have a lot of transatlantic kind of diplomacy going on, but we have commerce. And so if, you, if Morocco, recognizes the United States, American merchant ships can cross the Atlantic and dock in Tangier. So this is a very important, this has long been an ally of the United States. It, you know, its port is at like a choke point, a critical choke point that you need to have access to the Mediterranean. Uh, so the United States in the early 20th century 
had encouraged an open door, free trade policy, preventing any sort of um, colonization of Morocco. And in 1912, France broke that treaty and set up a protectorate. Uh, and Spain did too. Um, France was sort of the dominant power in Morocco. And Wharton um, is writing in her articles for the American public that Hubert Liete, who is the French resident general, is actually a hero. He's he's saving Europe from uh, from sort of Germans. He's keeping Africa safe. Um, and so she's really doing a lot of propaganda in terms of selling the French war and colonization of Morocco in the United States to the American public. And public opinion is playing an ever greater role in the early 20th century. It's being recognized more and more. It's not that it's just playing a role and it's up to historians to, to see how. It's that politicians are actually thinking about public opinion in a more deliberate fashion. And so what people think matters to the political elite. And if I can just add, since Wharton is such a famous author from such an elite family, she has the ear of Teddy Roosevelt, who she grew up with, Henry Cabot Lodge, who's going to prevent the League of Nations from essentially from happening, which then allows imperialism to expand into the Arab world um, without any American sort of oversight. Um, she really knows a lot of very influential people. They are her friends. They come to her house. Jusserand, the American ambassador between 1902, I think, and 1925, is one of her dear friends. So she is a linchpin in these transatlantic networks. So her importance, the long way of saying, why is she invited to Morocco? She has the ear of all of the political elite. She has a direct line to Roosevelt when it seems in 1917 that he is going to be the next Republican presidential candidate to Henry Cabot Lodge uh, and she also can reach a vast audience of ordinary American readers. So why wouldn't she be invited, right, to Morocco? Like if you're trying to promote in, in early 1917, at a time when the United States has yet to um, declare war, to end its neutrality, um, why wouldn't you invite Edith Wharton to Morocco you know she can't help but write about every single place she visits, and you know that it'll wind up as letters to her friends, as books for, for the public, which is exactly what happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So if you're thinking about someone that goes to a, uh, a place like Morocco, where there is this conflict, this simmering conflict between imperial powers and the 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 Riffians and the 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 Sultan and the independent state. Um, does she seek to avoid areas of conflict? And if so, does that really taint the way she sees Morocco? And her her this is a travel guide. You know how much of a real real impression of Morocco are we getting from it? Very little, uh, and it tells you nothing about Morocco and everything about Edith Wharton, France, and her efforts to shape American foreign relations, to bend sort of the American public to her, to what she really thinks is best. The, I, I wanna come back to this idea of conflict in a, in a moment, but to give you a sense of sort of the fabrication. Now, Wharton is as a literary, as an author, she's known as sort of part of the, the realist school of American literature. That is, she does not idealize her material, she tries to really be as true to life as she can. And she's not just an optimistic, you know, everything has ties up in a happy ending. Well, she goes to Morocco, and which is a, an account of a place that she is actually seeing. And, and she fabricates, she uses the term desert 33 times. She did not enter the desert once, not one step. But for her, it's all desert travel. And this is part of the Orientalist belief, you know, that this is a wilderness that needs some sort of Western oversight so that it can become better and flourish. There's certainly that. I think though, to get back to this idea of conflict, it's also a place where she's not exposed to conflict. And I think that that's really important because for Wharton, the desert becomes a way of, of indicating that she's out of a modern industrial city. Um, Paris is, is growing, there are refugees, there are new factories being set up. Coal is... Um, being uh, is in short um, short supply. And any coal during one of the, the coldest winters of ever, 1916, 1917, is being sent to munitions factories. Urban life, modern urban life, she didn't like it. She didn't like the changes that technology was bringing before the war, but during the war, it becomes absolutely just, unpalatable for her. She she hates the modern city and the way it's crowded and filled with factories and technology. And so I think the desert for her is also a stand-in for something that's not necessarily negative, but something positive that she finds there, which is a time that seems to predate industrialization and industrial war and this total war where you can't tell the difference between civilians and soldiers. Um, where civilians are being so affected. So I think that there's a very positive connotation. I'm just um, finishing up an article for the Edith Wharton Review on this about the term desert, that we shouldn't just dismiss it as sort of trite Orientalism. There's something quite positive about being in a desert because it's a place before the modern era. And there's a real sort of nostalgia in her writing when she uses the term desert for a time before the, you know, the so-called benefits of modernity. The reason I wanted to come back to this idea of conflict, you mentioned there's a reef war going on 
uh, sort of in Spain, in the Span, not Spain, but in the Spanish Morocco, that is threatening French Morocco, that is causing great upheaval. Also, the French have not yet conquered all of the southern areas of Morocco. So there's still this, um, you know, what 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 is sometimes called pacification that is, you know, um, sending troops until people submit to the French will. She was supposed to go to these areas of conflict. Her trip had, uh, the initial plan was for her to go to some of the, the nice, you know, cities, Tangier, um, Casablanca, uh, which is kind of the new economic center um, with its Atlantic Ocean port being kind of built up. Uh, Rabat, which is where there's an international exhibition. Uh, Meknes, Marrakesh, Fez, these are imperial capitals. Um, she was also supposed to go to the front line, which is something she had done often at the in the Western Front to to write for Scribner's magazine, and she didn't have she couldn't she actually just she she called that part of the trip off. Um, she said she was too tired, and I think what she was really tired of and was really indicating there was she saw Morocco as an escape from the war. And she, she really enjoyed seeing a place, and she says this in her book, where you get the sense that the war wasn't really happening. You have these wonderful cities, urban centers, but they are not yet industrialized, except for Tangier or Casablanca, which she dismisses. Casablanca, she barely mentions. Tangier, she calls as frowsy, familiar, you know, kind of well-trodden. So I think for Wharton, part of the things that you need to understand, part of what you have to understand is that this is a response as well to the war. It's an effective response. It's an emotional response. Like in Morocco, she really has a sense that she is not part of this awfulness of the modern era. I think that's a great way. I, I hadn't even thought of it like that as an escape mechanism uh, and that really changes the my perspective of the book i was wondering you mentioned orientalism and that trope is pretty evident I mean, does warden at all deal with the multi-ethnic morocco i mean you mentioned the riffian war uh there are also various uh, tribal groups there are various sects within the state that are kind of warring you know openly against each other does she deal with the multi-ethnic place that it is not at all. No. Uh, no. That's, ama that's amazing in itself, isn't it? I mean <laughs> No. Um, I'm trying to think if she mentions that there's a Jewish quarter, she might mention there's a Jewish quarter. But again, the Jewish quarter is shifting and changing. Um, you know, it basically it, it's European, it's French, and it's Moroccan. Um, and there's kind of a pot of sort of, you can see she's talking about sub-Saharan Moroccans. She might mention Jewish Moroccans. She might, she does certainly doesn't mention Amazigh culture um, at all. She's, she's giving you the, she's really giving you the convenient um, French narrative of, of this wonderful life in colonial in and colonized Morocco. And, and I'd like to say that as a historian of Morocco, um, who has written in particular on food, there is at this point that she's coming, not just inflation, where it is becoming too expensive for ordinary Moroccans to purchase food, but there's an actual um, absence of food. The, the French military is taking cereals from Morocco, because wheat, Morocco is a wheat growing country, and bring it, and sending them to sending this, the cereals, the wheat, uh, particularly hard wheat, to um, um, French troops. So there's an inflation. The monetary policy is all over because there's like three types of money being used. 
Um, and also there's just a less and less food available in the marketplace. So this is a real crisis point for, for the French. Um, but of course they're, they're protecting her from it. But I think that one of the things that looking at this work of literature that I can do as a historian of Morocco is to provide the Moroccan counter narrative, right? That I know the history of this place and the archives that allow me to delve more deeply into life in colonial Morocco um, in ways that I think people who focus on American literature don't often know. So that's one of the reasons too that, um, you know, I think it's important for a Moroccanist to look at this work uh, and try to just get beyond um, the Orientalism. Yes, it's Orientalism. It, you know, I mean, we we can, you know, we we would need, you know, a million fingers and toes to count all of the Orientalist fare from the 19th and early 20th century. But um, but given Wharton's position in sort of among elite families of the United States, her the way she has the ear of foreign policy, political people, um, and also French diplomats, you know, why, again, why Morocco? What purpose is being served by kind of recycling some of these Arabian Nights images for a new century, a new audience? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I want to get to here too. Um, well, and let's come back to the narrative in a moment. One of the things that struck me when I looked at in Morocco were the illustrations. I wasn't expecting to find that many illustrations, a lot of photos, I should say. So what does that do for the book? And how, how did, I mean, I kind of have an idea of how photography worked back then, but how did it work for this book in particular? And I, I you know, we're not at the point and click stage here. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, I now the the it was the French government who supplied her with these these images. Um so everything is curated through the French government. Um and there was I, she wrote to her um publisher Scribner's and she asked uh for those photographs back because like you say Photography then is not photography today. These are really precious documents and she wants to make sure that she has the one and only copy. Um, I think um, when what really strikes me uh, about these and all of them are from, I see the Service des Beaux-Arts, um, the director of the service of uh, of the Department of, Bo uh, of Fine Arts and Historic Monuments traveled with her. Um, so he's he's really, you know, she really had always liked architecture, interior design. He's traveling with her. He's giving her sort of, um, uh, you know, a very kind of scholarly take uh, that she would have really appreciated. What really strikes me about these photos in the book, um, and as you say, the original has uh, a lot of fine arts photos, is that many of them are of cities without people. You know, um, you really, again, it just emphasizes kind of the beauty of the place without really having uh, people. Um, there are a few ceremonies, uh, I see, but um, basically you're given a very pristine, very curated view uh, of Morocco that has absolutely no sense of, um, you know, how, how the modern era had actually come uh, to, to Morocco. Um, one of the, the things that I have also looked at is sort of the policy of historic preservation. The French sought to show or demonstrate respect for colonized Moroccans by preserving their architecture and their Medina. 
The Medina means the walled kind of medieval quarters. That's sort of in, in, in France or Europe, it would be the pre-Hausman Paris, right? Because Hausman just, you know, he just raised the medieval part of France and put in these big boulevards and modernized the city. And that had not happened in many parts of Morocco and many Moroccan cities yet, but it had begun. It had begun. So the French think that they are demonstrating respect for Moroccans by showing this sort of authentic uh, Moroccan architecture. But really what Moroccans want are wide roads so they can bring their cars, tramways so consumers can come to the marketplace. Um, they, there, there was in Marrakesh, in Tangier, factories already established in the pre-colonial era. They, you know, there's a reason when the French go to Morocco, they can't find any artis artisans who can do some of the, the handcrafted work that, that they had expected to find. And it's because the economy is changing. Um, so factories, there is, there are factories, there are, you know, one gate in Fez was a neoclassical design. It was commissioned by the Sultan. Well, the French come and they're like, son of you know, they're just like, this is not authentic. This is, um, you know, we need to get rid of this. And so they actually tear down that gate and many of the other elements of sort of uh, modern engagement in the world that are evident and they reconstruct the gate to look more authentic, like more medieval. Right. So they think that they're doing this wonderful service. Um, and it's what they're certainly you can see in the photos of in Morocco showing to Edith Wharton. Um, but it, it doesn't. Again, one of the things that I'm, I'm really happy to be able to bring to the study of this book by a very famous American writer is an understanding of of the French colonial past. And knowing that some of these things, some of the assumptions that you find in this book, which are perpetuated in scholarship, you know, everyone tends to say, oh, Edith Wharton's desert trip. No one just took out a topographic map to, to just say, well, she, but she was never in the desert, right? So Marrakesh is south, but it's not the desert. And I don't want to... I, you know, it, I'm sure, you know, my very rudimentary uh, description of realism, American, you know, realistic literature, you know, can be shot down too. I, I don't have that background necessarily. But I think it's kind of interesting. You've had sort of literary scholars looking at this book, but what happens when a historian of Morocco looks at this book? And I and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to 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 do is to just look a little bit more deeply at, at the narrative that she's telling, be able to identify when this narrative contradicts what's actually going on in the ground, and also just say, well, with what effect? Why, you know, why is this book still, you know, with me saying it's, it's wrong and often fabricated, the descriptions, why is it important? Well, why is it important is because it really was the culmination of a lot of the political conversations and activities that she had done in the previous decades. And I, I totally get that, um, in, the impact this is going to have on French colonialism and the, the perception of the French Union broadly. And I get how it's going to uh, reverberate in the United States at the time. But I'm wondering, too, is this part of the sort of construction of an American century? Is this, you know, part of that grander narrative about American exceptionalism in world affairs? I think the exceptionalist idea is, from my understanding of this time, is we're not an expansionist country. We, we've got North America. That's enough. So Charles Eliot Norton, Mark Twain, others who are anti-imperial would say, you know, we're exceptionalist. I think what Wharton is saying is, it is time for the United States to assume its rightful role 
next to France and England and other great powers in Europe. So that's really interesting because, you know, when the Spanish-American War is finishing and the Senate is considering whether to acquire places like the Philippines and Puerto Rico, one of the senators, uh, Platt or Pratt, I think it is, from Connecticut, says, you know, we need to start thinking about ourselves in the same way Europeans think about themselves, that we can take places. You know, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that we can't expand. So Wharton is of that ilk. She, she certainly is. And she was with the Spanish-American War. And she is as well with um, European colonialism. And it's not, you know, the extent to which she would say that, you know, the, the United States should do a land grab of former provinces of the Ottoman Empire, that I see no evidence for. But I think that she thinks that American interests are best served by a by by European empire and that the open door does not best serve you know American interests interesting okay so what is she what's her take on Clemenceau at the end of World War one and his idea of uh, anglo-american French military alliance is she on board with that it sounds like she would be yeah, I'm going to have to deflect here because I actually don't know. <laughs> but what this is what I can tell you, though, that is fascinating. When you look at the people who are participating in the Paris Peace Conference, uh, and I'm thinking here, um, Henry White came with Woodrow Wilson. Okay, uh, Andre Tardieu had come to the United States. Uh, in some diplomatic role, he's eventually going to become Prime Minister of France. Uh, Jusserand, these are all people, um, take these three, I'm sure if I look at the list, I'll find more. These, Henry White had married her next door neighbor. They were dear friends. Jusserand, she would, she would visit his summer home in Lyon uh, regularly. Uh, Tardieu, they would be, they were lifelong friends from the time that he was a journalist working for Le Temps, which was the kind of, uh, um, the mouthpiece for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in France to his time as prime minister. She is, I do, I do not have anything that she has written on, um, Clemenceau, but she is very much, um, involved with the people who are making these or having the conversations about how this war will end and what comes next. Now, I can't over, I don't want to overstate her role, uh, you know, at this point, but um, what I think that our understanding, if we map out the networks that Edith Wharton has, what it can do is show us that these decisions are being made, um, public opinion is being shaped, political decisions are being made, not just by the white men in institutional power, but by others. And, and in this case, it's Edith Wharton, a woman, no governmental uh, role at all, but very influential in shaping conversations, both as a private citizen who's so uh, closely aligned with the people who are participating um, and with American readers to get back to that original point. Um, and I think that it's also important, and I had mentioned to you before um, our conversation that I had really enjoyed listening to Patrick Corr speak about the Atlantic order. And one of the points he made on your podcast was, was fascinating. And it was the United States doesn't have an established professional diplomatic core at this time. It's amorphous. So how are people in Washington, DC, how are people in the government getting information? Well, they're receiving, in part, they're receiving letters from Wharton American diplomats, French and American diplomacy was very different. So French diplomats, you could be a scholar, you could be a novelist, 
you know, a, a paint, whatever, you know, you wore many hats. Um, so the people in the embassy weren't necessarily their, the equals of, as seen by the French, um, weren't necessarily able to hobnob with French people who are influencing the political landscape. Um, but Wharton could, because she was, you know, she was an intelligent uh, person who knew the rules of French society, who spoke French beautifully. Um, and so she was really able to generate conversations like she did in, in 1910 when Theodore Roosevelt came to Paris. In April 1910, Roosevelt is finishing up a year-long trip to Africa and Europe after he had, um, after his presidential administration had ended. His last stop is in Paris. He tells the, writes the American ambassador, he says, make sure you save time for me to have a more private visit with Edith Wharton. And she invites people um, to that meeting, maybe somewhere between six and 10 people. It's, it's, it's a tea, 5.30 in the afternoon tea, who all Andre Chevrion, he had been in Morocco in 1905. His brother-in-law, uh, Georges Saint-René Talendier, uh, had tried to kind of implement the treaty that would allow for French colonization much earlier than it had actually happened um, and unsuccessfully, which led to the fall of, of, of the French government um, at that time uh, in the first Moroccan crisis. Um, so she, you know, she, she invites people who very specifically have these pro-colonial ideas. She can do that. She can invite a former president um, to meet with all of these influential people, but, and, you know, a, a normal kind of diplomat, maybe the American ambassador could, but a normal diplomat really didn't have that ability to shape those private conversations as much. It's incredible to think about her wielding that kind of power because today it, there wouldn't be a, a comparable person, I wouldn't think. Maybe, maybe uh, celebrity, Hollywood celebrities, but I mean, that's the, that's the level we're talking about here with Wharton. And then Three years after she publishes in Morocco, she's going to publish what's arguably her most famous book, The Age of Innocence. I often say to students, we, we might have called the, the Gilded Age, The Age of Innocence, you know, but uh, she comes back to the United States and she kind of looks at the United States after years of being away, a decade of being away. And, and what does she find? Okay, so she didn't physically come back to the United States before before writing that book. So this is a very much a nostalgic take on a world that exists in a kind of an amorphous New York City before the modern era, you know. Um, and the war is obviously somewhere in the author's mind, but never in the book. Even so, the the book takes place in the eighteen seventies. And then the final chapter takes place in the early 20th century. And it's the main character, Newland Archer, looking back and thinking how the world has changed and how society has changed, um, how travel has changed, how culture has changed, how he can make long distance phone calls now to his son, how he can just dart over for, you know, in five days, be in France. And there's a real nostalgia as he looks back, as, as the author makes it clear that he's looking back at his, at his life. Um, and, and that's very much tied, I think, to in Morocco, that nostalgia for a life when cities um, made sense to Wharton, when they had beauty, when they were... Um, legible maybe um, because the modern city with its new technology and its motorized vehicles and even its electric lamps um, also comes with factories, with immigrants, um, you know, with a need for kind of new sewage systems and reservoirs and 
uh, water supply. I mean, there's just so many problems with this new city. And and I think that in Morocco, in Morocco was published the very same month as the Age of Innocence. And I think that's really, really important because I think that at the end of the day, both of them reflect that sort of post-war, like, what have we done, you know, to this world? Like all of these modern technologies and all we did was use them to generate a war in which we could mow people down by the millions. And I think that 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 element of ambivalence towards modernity is apparent both in in Morocco and the age of innocence, particularly that last chapter, which makes it so clear. So that's the paradox that I'm most interested in. That's what I sort of what I'm getting at with the American century in a, in a sense is that it seems like she's saying in one breath with the age of innocence that yes, you know, we've gone too far. Modernity has gone too far. And, and does that mean that imperialism and that imperial mindset of the white man's burden has gone too far? And therefore is the American century really, um, you know, not, not worth it all. Yeah, no, that's not what she would say, actually. Right, that's so what I, me... I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, I think that that the idea that the Western world had modernized, this comes back to that idea of escapism, right? Because what, what the French could do and what she liked so much was that they could maintain a sort of pure, pre-modern, place where you could escape and and the french were thinking very deliberately about tourism wharton certainly mentions how tourists are going to overrun morocco once the war is over um but i think that the idea i mean it you know one of the ideas that i'm playing with as i write this is the extent to which escapism from or in a place from the modern Western world um, kind of infused colonial policy, that it wasn't just a way of demonstrating respect for Moroccans, uh, very, you know, maybe a well-intended but badly kind of implemented way of, of demonstrating respect, but was there something, um, you know, they had, empire had the power to do what it wanted and to plan a city as it wanted. And was there something maybe, um, you know, most of the administrators had fought in World War I, was there a certain solace they took from being able to maintain cities that, that predated kind of modern traffic factories? Um, did they think they were doing a service not just because this is how Moroccans should live, but how, because they were nostalgic for a world that no longer existed on their, in their own homeland um, that, you know, but that they could still remember. Well, I can't tell you how much I am looking forward to reading the book when it's out. And I hope that listeners will understand that this is a sneak preview of, of really a, some, I, I, what I think will be a really outstanding contribution to our knowledge of the period. And it actually gives me pause to think about what obscure books we might pull out of the dustbin and explore in order to get a that that new vantage on the period. That's right. It's what was popular then and has been forgotten. And the and and you know why do you why do you remember and why do you forget? Um but yeah that I mean I think that's a it's it's an interesting question. But in Morocco always comes up um, when you're talking about sort of American writing on Morocco. And um, what I hope is that when I'm done with this book, we'll have a better understanding of, of why Wharton wrote and why it was important to, to kind of get a new, uh, you know, have a new entry point for looking at how, uh, how Americans, not just in the government and in the diplomatic corps, uh, had an opportunity to shape world affairs and the role of the United States in the international arena at that time. Stacey, thanks a million for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. 
please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.